Welcome to the I'm Curious podcast. I'm your host, Katie Thrush, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. In this season, I'm diving deep into the gospel. And what I mean by that is that I'm searching for God in people, places, hobbies, passions, organizations, you name it. The gospel can be found outside the local church walls. And I'm here to find it and go deeper, even in the nitty gritty of it all. My guest today is someone that I have been following for a while now on social media. Her name is Megan Chance, and she has a podcast I'm a huge fan of called Faith and Feminism. She's not afraid to go deep on the hard-hitting topics such as gender equality, racism, oppression, and so many more. I'm thankful for her voice and what she unpacks in our conversation. And she's a brand new author of her upcoming book, Women Rising, Learning to Listen and Reclaiming Our Voice. This book comes out on May 11th, and trust me, you guys, you'll want to pre-order this. Her stories that she shares in this conversation is only the tip of the iceberg on what she has for us. Her stories and what she's seen firsthand will grab you, and I can almost guarantee that you'll be ready to use your voice for what it is that God is calling you to. Just as a disclaimer before we dive in, we do touch on some topics that you might not want to have your kids listening in on. I know I have friends with littles, so I just wanted to put that out there in case you're in the car or at home playing this. It's just your friend letting you know what's up in case you need to go grab those headphones. Now without further ado, Megan Chance. All right, Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Ah, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So if we could get a little backstory, maybe like a quick minute or two of who you are and how are you in this place right now? <laughs> um, okay. Well, my name is Megan. Um, as you already mentioned, I am married. I have a husband <laughs> um, and two dogs. I am a podcaster. I host a podcast called Faith and Feminism. I've hosted that for about two years now. And I have a book coming out in May. On May 11th, I have a book called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. That's coming out with InterVarsity Press. And it's kind of my story of going from being a missionary that worked with oppressed and exploited women to realizing uh, kind of the patriarchal influence that um, that was causing their oppression and realizing that I was complicit and my church system was complicit and kind of trying to reclaim feminism and women's rights for the Christian faith. So um, that book detailing that story comes out in May. Um, it's been a lot of work, it's been so hard. <laughs> I'm sure. I, not so much like work, but like a, a lot of emotional labor, I guess is probably the right word. It's not like a ton of hours. It's more like, wow, this is like excavating work. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's a pretty good update. I'm from Colorado. I currently live in Georgia. People ask me why I did that. Um, I did. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Cost of living Just is for probably fun. part of it, but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so 
Yeah, I think that's it. Do you have any other questions for me? Did I cover my bases there? No, I think you did a great job covering yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So from what I know about you, you are super passionate about um, gender equality, obviously, but I think your story of how you came to that missionary trip, um, you were so just burned out from your job and you decided to quit and just go on this trip. Mm-hmm. What, what changed everything, honestly? What changed and how did you get to that place of, I'm just going to go on this trip and we're going to see what happens? <laughs> yeah, so um, some explanation, explanation might be the fact that I'm an Enneagram 7. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. Oh, very, very. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm an Enneagram 7 ring 8, so I love adventure and travel. Um, I went to school for journalism. So I went to the University of Colorado. I got my degree in journalism, news editorial journalism, right as newspapers were dying. But I did work for a newspaper briefly as an intern. And it was very, very cutthroat, maybe because it was dying. I don't know. <laughs> it was just a lot of like, I just I, I felt like I kind of expressed myself, the kind of journalism I was doing is mainly like reporting the facts, which is what journalists should do. But I kind of wanted to insert my own opinions into things. And so I graduated college and like, oh goodness, I don't know if I want to go to be <laughs> a newspaper journalist. And so I'm like, well, I'm actually uh, gonna go and move to Australia. So I did that first, which you probably didn't know, but yeah, I went to Australia for six months and did a Bible school uh, with youth with a mission and I did missions there I came back afterwards just completely ran out of money and uh, knew I needed to get a job and you know start my life I guess uh, you know everyone tells you your life starts when you like get a big person job or whatever and so I was like I gotta go do that so I went I went home and um, the the highest paying career I could find would be working at a bank and so I was a teller at a bank and dealt with all kinds of um, sexism from, not from my uh, workplace, but from my patrons, mm-hmm. just getting sexually harassed by different creepy old men um, that were always married. And I, I just, yeah. So I, I was working there and I just really felt like there was more for me than this. And I... I I liked the idea of earning more money, but it wasn't enough. Like I just felt like something was missing. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. And so um, I heard about this program called the world race and I prayed about it. And I felt like God told me, he said, uh, you can stay at this job and, you know, kind of live a normal life and I will bless you. And that will be great. Or you can go on this crazy adventure around the world for the next 11 months and it's going to be harder and more difficult than you could imagine, but it's also going to bring more depth and life and adventure and joy um, to, to your life than staying here. And he's like, either way, I'll bless you. But if you want like a wild ride, go on the world race. And so I decided to go on the world race and I, yeah, yeah, quit my job, left everything. 
uh, saved up money for a while so I could, I mean, I raised money, but I also used a, um, a good chunk of my savings to go on this trip. And yeah, left for a trip around the world for 11 months doing mission work. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, I didn't know about the first part of the story of <laughs> you were worked at a bank. <laughs> I did. I did. It was it was, uh, it was paying the bills. That's what I'll say about it. Yeah. I feel like we all have that job where we're just like, I'm not proud of where I worked, but it got me to where I am now. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I worked as a security guard, like right out of high school and I had literally no reason to be doing this at all, but it paid some bills. (laughs) That's awesome. So I understand. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I know that we talked about you are passionate about gender equality and that kind of stuff. And you kind of touched on some oppression that you kind of saw and you definitely experienced some sort of um, just unwanted things that men tried to do or say to you. Um, On this trip, I know you kind of said something about you saw injustice and you saw discrimination. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could kind of touch on that Absolutely. So, um, but if you guys want a more detailed version, you should check out my book because I yes. go very much. Very, very depth. important. <laughs> yes. But um, I will try and give a synopsis. So month one, um, let me give you a little bit of backstory before I even get there. I was raised in the conservative evangelical church, raised to believe that my sole purpose on earth was to serve my future husband and future children. Whenever that happened, I wasn't allowed to lead or teach or preach or um, yeah, just a lot of different things. And so as a child, it's so interesting because I wanted to lead and teach and preach, but as a woman, I wasn't allowed to do that. And so I think that's another thing that drove me into missions work. It was something I was allowed to do as a woman. And so um, month one on the race, uh, I was in a country, I was in Ireland of all places. And we had a contact who asked, uh, he didn't ask us, he suggested we wear head coverings to church and uh, we didn't because we had never heard of that and weren't familiar with this concept and he suggested it and uh, we didn't think it would be a big deal if we didn't. Well, we didn't wear head coverings and he got very upset and um, on one of our first nights there sat us down for a lecture on, on God's order, which um, I don't know your audience, but if you're grown up in the conservative evangelical church, you probably heard of God's order where uh, men are basically in charge of women and they yep. <laughs> should, t- I guess, take care of them. And women are kind of, he kind of like the way he presented it is like women were like children and men were supposed to take care of them. And something he kept on saying is uh, men should worship audibly in the church and women should be inaudible. So just a lot of like voice silencing. And for me, that's always like rubbed me the wrong way, not only because I'm outspoken and driven and loud and opinionated, but also just because uh, I I was starting to make a connection of the harm that this kind of theology uh, taught, but I I didn't really have the words for it. I kind of just like kind of just berated a bunch of us women and we all went outside crying and then one of our male teammates like went to defend us and it was a very just interesting moment and I remember that night being significant for me not only because of what we had like endured but being in this small 
group of women realizing that together we were empowered and we all wanted to do something about this injustice. I had no idea what the next 11 months were to hold. Um, and so after I left Ireland, I, I knew that God was like doing something to me to kind of question, like, I feel like question what that man had taught and was teaching. And, um, I was just a couple months later, I was in Kenya and women, uh, and young girls were telling me that they had experienced female genital mutilation, um, where I'm, if you're not familiar with the practice, uh, they, some people, the culture itself might call it female circumcision, where they remove all of the um, external genitalia mm -hmm. of uh, either the clitoris or just the vulva. All, it depends on how extreme the culture is, how much they remove. But either way, it's a way so women don't enjoy sex and sex is painful. And it's a way of kind of curbing their sexuality. And if you go and do some research on female genital mutilation, um, it's it's it can women girls die from it often mm -hmm. because it's not done in a safe setting the tools aren't safe it's some local woman that isn't trained and oftentimes uh not oftentimes sometimes the girls can bleed to death because mm -hmm. it's not in a proper place and so I remember being in Kenya and having like the way it started at first is they would ask me about female circumcision and the first time I was asked, I'm like, no, we don't practice that. And, you know, going back to my college days, right, a woman's studies course where I actually did learn about this practice. And I'm like, surely this isn't happening here. Um, I had the idea that it happened primarily in Islamic areas. And we were in a Christian rural area in Kenya. And so I didn't think anything of it. And then another girl like talked to me about it. And then finally, this group of four girls had talked to me about it. And uh, I could tell that they felt like a lot of shame about what was happening to them and they didn't, yeah, they, they told me that they had all been circumcised and they, they didn't know what to do about it. And um, shortly thereafter, one of the women, or I guess their girls was, yeah, they were in high school. Uh, she confessed to me that she had been raped mm -hmm. uh, many times by her uncle. And I started to see this tie between, I guess, this, this terrible practice um, and abuse. And so I went back and I talked to our contact about it. And he said that in this particular village, they took all girls like 11 to like 13 and once a year did this procedure to them. And sometimes, like he said, they would like celebrate the passage with like balloons and stuff, but sometimes the girls would die, uh, and bleed to death. And, uh, not only that, even if they survived the procedure, not, it makes uh, childbirth, way, way more dangerous. Um, you're a lot more prone to infections. And when these women have children, the baby can often get stuck. And in this rural area, they didn't have uh, the healthcare that they needed. So there's really no, there's literally no benefits to female genital mutilation. It's something that people do to control women. And so that was, I'm like, wow, this is happening right in front of me. How, how, what? how can this still be happening? You know, it was the year 2012. Why, how can this still be happening? And then the next month, I, I met a lot more women who had um, been telling me that they were being beaten by the men in their village. And, and then after that, I was working with um, women in their red light district in India who had been trafficked from Nepal. And so 
there's a huge trafficking industry from India into Nepal and traffickers will go to these impoverished areas in Nepal and, and go to uh, families struggling to feed their children and say, hey, we'll take your children um, and we'll give them a good job in India. So if you kind of think of the United States and maybe like Central America or Mexico's relationship, a lot of people will leave Nepal to, to go to India to get better jobs. It's the same way here. And so then these traffickers take their, their children and sell them into slavery. And if they're girls, they're being sold into sex slavery. Mm-hmm. And so I was there and I um, worked with uh, <laughs> a contact and he had established an old brothel into like a daycare center for these, these women who had been trafficked, their children, because uh, there's not protection, obviously, for these women. Oftentimes these clients don't, don't use protection. And, and in fact, just the conditions were quite horrendous. If you've seen Slumdog Millionaire, it was kind of like that, but worse mm-hmm. um, where I was. And uh, yeah, so these women had, <sighs> yeah, <laughs> had been trafficked and were surviving and these children had nowhere to go when they were with clients. And so our contact had started this daycare center and on our first day there, I, met a little girl who, uh, you know, didn't have pants on. She just had like this baggy shirt and was just covered in dirt. And um, she was, you know, I asked her story and she was being raised by the pimp who sold her mother. So her mother was sold to another pimp when she was like six months old and was now being raised by the pimp, which probably was, you know, why she was so neglected. Um, And on top of that, she had a hearing impediment that made it so she wasn't able to communicate. So she was five years old, underfed, wasn't able to communicate, but she went to this daycare center every day to get fed. And, uh, you know, and so I met her the first day and just was so moved by her story. Um, I'm so angry, honestly, that uh, she was being raised by a pimp and was literally had no way to communicate about what was happening to her that I was like, well, we have to do something. And um, uh, the contact was, you know, I was asking him what we could do. And he said, well, you can't go, you can't like, we can't take her away because the pimps can be violent and kill over their property. We can't go to the police, they've been bought off. And he's like, you just have to pray in love. And uh, yeah, but that was like, knowing her for that month kind of changed everything for me. Uh, Just the fact that this, it was just, I felt like month after month after month of witnessing extreme oppression, it was kind of like seeing what she lived like was like, I guess the hair that broke the camel's back. And I decided I, I needed to do something. I didn't know what, and I didn't know how, and I didn't know how to be effective at this point in my life. I had a lot of uh, white saviorism. I thought I could fix problems that I couldn't. Um, and had to learn a lot about that. But um, I made it, I made a dedication that I was going to do something. And eventually I was um, hired to start uh, this inner healing program or helped found this inner healing program with my missions organization. Um, and so I went around the world again for um, another about a a year working with um, other sexually exploited women, other oppressed women, and just my job was to listen to their stories and create a safe uh, a safe place for them to tell their stories and them to be in community and tell those stories to each other. And um, yeah, and through that, 
they were, I just heard the most, just most extreme stories of violence. It felt like just a broken record and just started to see this tie of like women, and patriarchy and oppression and oppression and oppression and oppression. And it was, it was so overwhelming. I, I knew I had to do something about it, but I didn't, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know how uh, to make a difference until one day I had this experience where I knew exactly what I needed to do. And it was to confront uh, patriarchy that was causing the power differential that harmed them in the first place. Um, so yeah, I, I know that was a lot and I could go even deeper into that. I even skimmed over a lot of the stories, but yeah, it definitely witnessed a lot of extreme oppression around the world. Yeah, I, I'm just blown away. Honestly, just thank you for being able to share those stories. I know that that's probably not an easy thing to hold on to either. That's a lot of, a lot of oppression, a lot of injustice and a lot of ways where some of us are just so oblivious to it because we don't hear about it. And that's not right either. Because mm -hmm. when I hear those stories, all I want to do is I want to help. I want to do something, but it's, mm -hmm. it's so hard when, when you're across the country, across the world and one, you don't hear about it Two, Like you said, there are so many factors that can go into it that could go wrong or even worse, where it's just, it's so, it's heartbreaking to hear those things. And it is hard for like you and I are white women, like that, that white savior complex of, well, I can go save them. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a little deeper than that, but <laughs> a lot deeper than that. But I did learn. Yes. <laughs> so I, I mean, I could talk about white saviorism, and then I could also talk about like, um, I think sometimes we get this idea that you know it's happening over there, but the, the stuff I witnessed is happening over here um, right. as well. And I think that's kind of when I had the revelation. Is so I'm I've survived um, sexual assaults. I've had strangers grab body parts that and run um I've I've had I mean <laughs> I've had some really really terrible situations with men um and so I, I remember I mean if any of us who grew up in conservative evangelicalism were told that purity culture would I mean it would save us basically if we did everything right if we followed the rules if we didn't let our boyfriends do whatever, if we covered up, um, then we would be safe. And I think that's one of, I mean, I have so many things I could break apart with purity culture. Um, but I think, too, one of, <laughs> I think one of the things is that uh, there's this kind of idea that it's like your fault, you know, it's your right. fault. And so I've always followed the rules, always. I was a goody, 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 because that's how I found my identity and my worth was just by following the rules. And it was through seeing other women who had followed the rules and me follow the rules and realizing that that didn't protect us at all. Um, and the, the, the lie that patriarchy tells you or the lie that I think a lot of complementarian churches preach is like, uh, as long as you have good men, bad things won't happen. Mm -hmm. um, but this whole, and like, you just need to trust them to protect you. Um, well, I mean, we just had the Ravi Zacharias thing come out and, and right. the, the simple fact of the matter is uh, this system doesn't work. 
Uh, this idea that good men will protect vulnerable women or even women in general is not going to work because um, it, there's been tons of studies that have come out that sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, all of this is not due to sexual urges. This is actually due to extreme power differentials. And not only is the church propping up these, I should say the conservative evangelical church propping up these extreme power differentials, um, but this is bleeding into culture as well. And so um, if you look at us as a society, like it's, we're, we still live here in the United States in a very patriarchal culture. And if you travel the world, um, you're gonna see a lot of patriarchy. And so it's this unequal power differential that women are seen as less than, it's not as valuable, not as capable, that we get these huge power differentials that make women vulnerable to abuse in the first place um, and make it so men think they can take what they want when they want it without asking. And so I had this realization actually one night, um, this was you know several years after I had started doing these inner healing retreats. Um, I still worked for the missions organization. I was leading a trip back um, to the Philippines. I worked with uh, sexually exploited women there and women who had been, yeah, were being bought and sold. And uh, I talked to a woman and it was her first night in the bars. And so I was partnering with a, a ministry that uh, gave these women an opportunity to, to go all the way through college and graduate. And I loved that program because I love that. I shouldn't say I loved, I love that program because it gives women, um, you know, it's not like switching, they're in debt, you know, there's jewelry and stuff that they could make, which um, I'm not saying anything that's wrong with the jewelry thing, but it gave these women options to pursue a career that they loved um, and wanted to do. And so I was talking to a woman, it was her first night in the bars. She was 18 years old, had a child and she was said she was there because um, she had no other way to feed her child. Wow. Which makes sense. This is how a lot of women get exploited. They're trying to take care of their children or their family members or something. And so it was her first night um, and she was just trying to make it through and survive. And so I was telling her about uh, the ministry I partnered with. And as I was speaking to her, we had been talking probably about 20 or 30 minutes and these six drunk men came up to us. Um, usually in this kind of setting, uh, women were on the stage, like swaying back and forth in their underwear and the men would watch and like point to the one they wanted. And that's generally how it worked. And so it was really odd, uh, that these men approached us while I was talking to her, um, and they wanted her and she didn't want to go with them. So she said no. And I said no. And we kept on saying no, and they weren't listening and they were grabbing at her and, uh, trying to take her by force. And so me, uh, me and a friend decided, okay, well, we need to buy her before they can. And so we ended up buying her and it turned into this huge thing where uh, the bar managers thought that the, the six men had bought her. And then we had to argue with them about like who bought this woman, which is just such a disturbing and wrong concept, even in the first place. Like anyways, and so um, we, we were able, we went into this, like got into this huge argument in this bar, everyone was staring at us and we were able to, um, get that woman home safely for the night, which felt like a small victory, but a very small one, um, because these six men were now very, very angry. And, uh, I guess they thought they had paid for this woman, but instead just grabbed off 
just grabbed a woman off the stage and took her. Um, and I remember them walking down the street and her looking back at us like she was just terrified and there was nothing I could do, of course. And I felt like I had made the situation worse because not only were these men drunk, now they were very angry. And I know, we all know what happens when men are drunk and angry or what often could happen to, to women, especially men that would frequent, frequent an area like this. And um, so I remember just collapsing on the street thinking, um, like, I just made this worse. What am I doing? What am I doing here? And I was like leading this team. And I, I just had this huge existential crisis of like, what am I even doing here? How am I helping? Like, this is, she is so easily replaced. Like, we help one woman and she's just replaced by another woman who's vulnerable and desperate. We need to change the dynamics. We need to change the demand. And uh, I just had this realization that nothing's going to change until we confront the men who buy women, until we confront patriarchy that makes women vulnerable in the first place. And it was that night that I, um, like, I couldn't sleep. And the next night I went to the bars again and I just talked to these men and these men were talking, they were American men who were at the bars and they were asking why we were there. And they said, you know, women here, and the Philippines were in the bars as he was talking to this woman who was uh, under his arm. I shouldn't say woman, she's probably a teenager. And he, this guy was like 55. Mm -hmm. um, and he says, women here are raised right. Women in the West like are too feminist. Like they think they know what's good for them, but here they respect me like I deserve to be respected. Wow. Yeah, and I just had this, connection like this guy talking about how women are made to respect are supposed to respect and that's how they're raised right and it just sounded like these evangelical preachers I had grown up with mm. and I was like oh my gosh like this whole system of men thinking that women must submit to them and respect to them at all costs something that I was taught in my conservative Christian upbringing it's the same kind of thinking that these guys who are in the bars have. And I just knew that I needed to confront it. Like nothing wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna get better until we confronted the patriarchy and the demand and these men who treated women like objects. And the only way I need, knew to do that was to try and fight for women's rights within the church. And so um, I quit my job. Um, I worked at a missions organization. I was like, I'm gonna write a book. I'm gonna try and, you know, get people to realize that these systems, this biblical womanhood is not helping anyone. It's actually really, really harmful. And I saw the effects firsthand of this kind of thinking that women need to submit and respect men. And I see that the men that are going to buy these women, that's what they want. Or I can't say all of them. I didn't talk to all of them, but I talked to a lot of them and this is what they wanted was submissive women who respected them. And so, um, yeah, I was like, this has to change. And so I started talking about um, women's rights within the church and people got really, really angry and told me I couldn't be a feminist and a Christian. They told me I was going to hell, friends left me, family was disappointed in me. Um, but I knew that in my heart that this is what God had called me to. 
Um, and so, you know, I started reading all these books on, you know, Christian, Christian theology and understanding the context and the verses and the, you know, hermeneutics of scripture and understanding what was the intention of these books and how they've been perverted uh, to create these huge power differentials. And as I've said before, uh, rape and sexual assault, this is caused by power differentials. This is like scientifically studied. Um, and so anything that's creating and promoting power differentials is definitely contributing not only to the, you know, uh, abuse that we saw uh, that I witnessed of women in the sex trade, but also women who are beaten and female genital mutilation. And what I had experienced as uh, a woman getting sexually harassed or sexually assaulted by strangers. Um, this was all due to that idea that men were raised to think that they were better and women were less and they could take what they wanted from women. And so, uh, yeah, so I wrote a book, started a podcast called Faith and Feminism. Um, yeah, it's been a journey. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just, I'm so impressed by you. Um, and I can hear parts of your story and my story kind of going together. Um, just, I'm super passionate about women in ministry. Um, and I do agree, there's a lot of stuff in the conservative areas of church where we're still lacking with women being in leadership roles. And I've been in that area where I'm currently waiting for a position to open up within a local church. And I live in Indiana where not a lot of women are preachers around here. Mm -hmm. And that's really discouraging. Um, but thankfully the church that I do go to uh, put out a statement a couple of years ago about women are totally allowed to be in leadership roles. And that made our church just split. And that just really bothered me because women have so much capability within the church that I think the men are just scared, honestly. I think they're scared about what we women could do and how much it could bring so many people to the local church, but I think it hurts their egos too. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, i I'm just thankful for voices like yours that you wrote a book about this because you saw firsthand that our system is totally messed up. So thank you for writing this book. I'm super excited to read it now. Not that I wasn't before, but now I'm even more excited. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. And talking about the church, um, what's one thing that you wish uh, you could unlearn from you're growing up in the church. Wow, I mean, so I, I want to make something clear. I don't think the church is all bad. I am still a Christian. I'm still a believer of Jesus Christ. I think a lot of people think because I critique the church that I'm like, oh, she must have just fallen away. She's a slippery <laughs> slope of Satan or something. It's okay. Not people true. think that about me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm, I'm still good. <laughs> yeah. I just, I think, I mean, honestly, I'm just trying to follow Jesus and Jesus was a liberator of women. And so I am called to be one as well. But something that I wish that I could unlearn, my goodness. Um, wow. Okay. So I think I'd probably have to say purity culture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and That's what I would say too. <laughs> yeah. I think, okay. So I don't know your experience. So my experience was uh, they described 
us little girls at the age of like 11 that we were flowers and then like each time you like kiss someone you would lose a petal and then you'd be a bald flower and no one wanted a bald flower um and then on top of that we were told to cover up all the time and I was uh, I remember when I was 13 um I went on a mission trip and I wore a shirt. It's like, my, you know, you're awkward at 13 and you're like, you smell bad and you're just, you're awkward. And <laughs> I had this shirt that I wore all the time because it was like my safe place. It was a crew neck, like the neck, you know, like my shirt went all the way up to my neck, like it had short sleeves and everything. But apparently when I rose my arms, like to reach for something, a small sliver of my stomach showed. And I remember that my youth pastor uh, publicly shamed me um, in front of people saying, you know, you don't want to make boys stumble. And by the way, there was like no boys around. <laughs> so regardless, anyways, so I, uh, you know, I felt so much shame and I really internalized that. And then later that week, it was the first time I was sexually assaulted. A stranger came up to me on the street and grabbed my breast. And, um, I thought it was my fault because it must've been the way I was wearing, even though I was wearing, you know, long baggy clothes, I thought, okay, this must've been my fault. I must've caused this in some way. And I, I think that is just one of the most damaging things we could ever teach women that are girls that were in charge of uh, the sexual needs or responses of men. And that's just complete BS and it, and it emboldens uh, rape culture. If you're always saying, you know, I remember I gave a talk at my church and I was telling the story. I was trying to like tell people that purity culture was bad without like telling people. So I was kind of asking questions. And so I was telling different stories of how I had been sexually assaulted by strangers or even my friends, like who I thought were my friends. And each time I told a story, I'd be like, okay, so what happened here? What do you think went wrong? And this woman would respond and she said, you were, you know, you were uh, not paying attention. You should have been more so aware of your surroundings. And I'm like, okay, all right. I can, okay, I'll take that. Okay, what about this story? She's like, oh, you should have been swimming in a different swimming pool. Like, wow, that, you, that was the wrong pool to swim in. I'm like, okay what about this story? And I told another story and she started to tell me again that I had done something wrong and had this realization that no matter what I did, it was my fault or that's what she was saying. No matter if I was 13 or 12 or 15, um, it was my fault. And she had this realization started sobbing in front of everyone. And it's like, what have I been telling my daughter? And so that is just something, not only does this affect women and girls to think that they're in charge and, and emboldened uh, rape culture, this is also communicating to men uh, that if something is showing that they can touch it or take it right. um, because it, it's on the market or what is the phrase? Like if it's not on the market, don't show it or something like that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> something like that. And so, but that's just teaching boys that they can take and touch and dominate and do whatever they want with women's bodies whenever they feel the urge because it wasn't their fault because they should have been covering up and of course that's a huge problem because we can see that women in burkas get raped this has nothing to do with what a man sees and what he doesn't see uh this is about a man's need for domination and control and the way that he um, expresses that because women have sexual urges shoot dang i grew up 
I, you know, I, I went through puberty. Anyone that has gone through puberty knows that there are sexual urges that come up, but I never felt entitled to take what I wanted or to touch uh, someone else's genitals uh, without asking uh, because I wasn't raised to believe that they belonged to me. Right. And so I think one thing I wish we could unlearn and just never have done is purity culture. And I think there's real ground to talk about sexual ethics I don't think purity culture was anything. I think it tried to uh, stop the objectifying of women by objectifying little girls. And right. literally we were compared to objects. And so I think that's one of the many things that I, you can see in society how this kind of rape culture plays out. But think of the Brock Turner case. Mm -hmm. um, Chanel Miller wrote an incredible book. Uh, she was the survivor of the Brock Turner case. And kind of walked us through and how the defense said, oh, well, it was she was drinking, so it was her fault. But his excuse for not being responsible was that he was drinking. So there's this double standard of like, oh, well, it's her fault because she was drinking. It's not his fault because he was drinking. Um, and then they go through her past and try and justify what happened, the assault to her. Um, and they, they talk all about his future. And so we can see that the priority is always on the man and protecting the man. And we can see this in church structures. We can see it without church structures. And we can see this in statistics. Statistically, only four, or I think it's 4.6, 4.6 out of 1,000 rapists actually face jail time. And when they do face jail time, that jail time is often like three to six months. And we see that in the Brock Turner case again, like there was witnesses, like, like you, like she had the best case she could have because he was literally witnessed um, assaulting her, raping her. And yet, even though there's witnesses and everyone saw this and everything, he only got six months and it was shortened to three months. So he only spent three months in jail for uh, what happened. And I think this has a, a large part to do with the patriarchy that we see in society and within the church. I mean, we just heard about Ravi Zacharias recently and how he said, you know, he wasn't abusing women and, and he was, and they just believed him. Like they didn't believe women. And you know what? Jesus set such a clear example of believing women. When women weren't believed, they were the first missionaries, the first to report on the resurrection. And so if we're taking any cues from Jesus, we know we should believe women. And statistically, women are telling the truth 95 to 99.5% of the time um, when it comes to sexual assault. And there's statistics there that I talk about in my book as well. But all of that to say, I think I, I wish... We, I could unlearn purity culture and I wish little boys could unlearn it too because of uh, the natural uh, things. If you think you're entitled to your sexual urges, then you know we're seeing this. And we also, I mean, I could literally talk about this all day, but if you're even talking about school shootings, uh, school shootings, oftentimes like this, the one that happened at Marjorie Stoneman, uh, the guy was rejected. And so he thought, okay, well, I deserve this girl. So, uh, I mean, he had a lot of other issues going on, but that was like one of the inciting incidents. If we look up, there's a shooter in Santa Barbara, the mass shooting that happened there where he shot a bunch of women, it was because they were denying him sex. And so this idea of male entitlement can often lead them to violence. And one of the ways we see that is uh, through domestic violence and domestic assault and shootings, but also through sexual crimes. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's just mind blowing to me. Wow. Man. Um, what 
advice would you give to young girls who are in the local church today? Because I feel like my message would be so different than what I learned. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what they're teaching these days, so I'd have to be more familiar <laughs> with the context. It's been a while since I was in youth group. Um, but I think the message I'd want to say is that you are not less uh, because of your sex. And there is no proof of this. Your, I would say that your submission and your silence is not virtuous, even though this is what you've been taught. It's actually harmful because it's supporting a abusive system. I would say to believe in yourself, to trust your instincts, to trust your intuition, to trust that the Holy Spirit can speak to you just as much as the Holy Spirit can talk to anyone else. That if you see something in the Bible, it makes you think it's just as valid as what your pastor thinks. And so, um, yeah, I guess to believe in yourself and trust yourself. And, and if, uh, you know, you're not, you're not less, you're not more easily deceived. You're not, you know, all of these messages that I received, uh, I guess to believe in yourself and to trust yourself and to trust your intuition. Yeah. Do you think you would tell your 13 year old self all those things too? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I think actually God was trying to tell me those things, but it was so, I feel like God's voice is often drowned out by societal expectations of the church. I can remember God like empowering me to like speak up and do stuff even even though I knew I wasn't supposed to right. based on the guidelines that I had been given. And so I absolutely believe that God has been the first one to push me past my gender roles that have been described, prescribed to me. So, yeah, no, I, I agree to that. I feel like I've always had this inclination to go into ministry, but I was one way too scared to. And I was actually told by my dad, who was a previous minister, that the money's not there. Well, no, duh. <laughs> I know that. But two, I think there was just a lot of people who didn't see women as leaders, which is super bothering to me. That just drives me insane because there are so many women that we can look to for scripture, for just so many things. And we still want to just look at all these white men and say mm -hmm. like, oh, they know what they're talking about. Like, let's just let them talk. It's like, no, I think it's our, it's our turn. And we need to let people of color in on the conversation too. Where I think a lot of churches, when they say that they're diverse, it's not, not so diverse. And that's what's bothering me too. Mm -hmm. Where we're trying almost too hard to say like, oh, well, you see, now we have women in leadership. It's like, but do you have white women in leadership? Do you have what do we have here? <laughs> right. I mean, patriarchy and racism go hand in hand. And we can see this abused with the, I mean, a lot of people use Paul and uh, to uh, have historically have used Paul's writings, specifically wives submit to your husbands, slaves submit to your masters to justify slavery and patriarchy. Um, and this is clearly not the intent of the gospel. If we can agree that God is against slavery, then why are we still, I don't, I don't know how people are selectively choosing, oh, well, slaves submit, submit to your master. That's not valid anymore. But women right. submit to your husbands is still valid. And, and I think, I mean, there's a really great book. I just finished that talks all about this. So if you guys are listening, a historian, her, she wrote the making of biblical womanhood. I'm having her on my podcast tomorrow. Oh, awesome. um, or she, I'm interviewing her tomorrow. I'm not, she's 
her book releases March, April 20th. Oh, it releases April 20th, but I highly recommend it, but it really goes really into in depth of the historical things. And I think a lot of people are missing uh, what Paul was talking about there because he is, so, I mean, if we talk about the history of that time, we had the Roman household codes, which was, uh, you, men are the only ones in society that have any power. Um, and uh, typically, you know, only men were talked to. You didn't talk to women or slaves or any of that. And so the fact that Paul is even addressing women and telling uh, people to, you know, be kind to women and love women and support women, all this other stuff, is actually really subversive to the household codes. And so it, it, it's, it's just really interesting and people need to read it. But all of that to say, patriarchy and racism go hand in hand. Um, there are two ways to exploit people and domineer over them, which is so funny because if we look at Jesus, what did he do again and again? And that was give up power. They wanted Jesus to come uh, and take power. They're like, you're gonna be our king. And they thought of it that way, but Jesus is like, no, 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 like I came to serve, I came to give up power. And we see this even to his death on the cross, he had power, but he refused to access it because he wanted, I think he was really teaching us something about power dynamics and not to seek it out. And so um, I think it's really interesting that <laughs> the church, the uh, conservative church has become one of the greatest purveyors of patriarchy when that just seems so antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way he lived his life. We don't see Jesus telling women to submit to him. In fact, we see him subverting this. And I'm going to go into your last question because you asked me about a scripture that I love. Yeah, we can go right <laughs> into it. That's totally fine. Because <laughs> um, I feel like this is a good connection. So one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Mary and Martha. And it's so funny because I feel like I was never told that. I was always told that story. I don't even know what they tried to tell me with that story. Like maybe I need to clean more. I don't even know what their point was. Regardless, as Martha, you know, people who are familiar with the Bible, the story of Mary and Martha is Martha was doing her womanly duty, cleaning, preparing the house, doing what she should, kind of not hanging out with the men, just preparing to feed the men and serve them like she was taught, like is her culture. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like this, is, she was doing what she knew best. And, and some women want to do that. And that's totally great. And go for that. If you just want to, you know, that's what your life you want from your life. That's I fully empower women to do that. The thing I love about this story is Martha gets mad at Mary because Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet and listening. And so if we know the context here, people only sat at rabbi's feet if they intended to one day become a rabbi or a disciple or a teacher themselves. And so the fact that Mary is not, number one, hanging out with men, that's totally not okay. But number two, showing that she has a desire to learn and to grow, which is also totally not okay of her time. And she's forsaking her duties as a woman is also totally not okay. So she's has like three major strikes against her in terms of the patriarchal culture she was living in. And so she's sitting there and Jesus and Martha goes to Jesus like reprimand her, like she's doing the wrong thing. She's not doing what she should. And Jesus says, uh, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. And I love that line because Mary is breaking all of the patriarchal girl biblical gender roles that we have been taught and Jesus says she has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her and so for me that is what I like I just love that story because I'm not 
currently I'm yeah I'm I'm outspoken and chasing justice and uh you know fighting for women's rights and this is all against the biblical gender roles that I was taught growing up but I feel like Jesus is saying to me hey I've chosen what is better and it will not be taken from me and that women are empowered to lead and and grow and if they want to be a rabbi they can be a, a stinking rabbi um because I think Jesus empowers this so I feel like he really just dismantles patriarchy in that one sentence he's so clever like that we see this all over scripture he just delivers these like one-liners like oh okay I guess this is how things are and so that's one of my favorite lines in the whole bible is just kind of taking this idea of biblical womanhood that we've been taught and just flipping on it on its head to say actually Mary's doing pretty great doing what she's doing keep going Mary so um yeah yeah I love I love that passage too that's just been one of the things I have to come back to when I need the reassurance that the path that I'm on and maybe it doesn't look like everybody else but I feel like that's where God leads us to sometimes where people are telling us like, that's not your place to be doing that. Or you get that imposter syndrome. And I feel like God does this amazing thing to kind of reassure us that what we're doing is what he calls us to do. And it doesn't matter what society tells us. It doesn't matter what men think of us. If he calls us to go into ministry or be in vocational ministry or do something that glorifies his name, like that's that's what we need to be doing. It shouldn't matter what everybody else thinks about us. Only matters if we're bringing glory to him anyways. Yeah, so good. Yeah. Well, I think I have all the questions that I have for you, but before I go, I want to make sure people can connect with you and follow you um, and obviously get a hold of your book. So I want you to kind of just say where they can find you on social media and where they can find your book. Hmm. Yeah, so you can find me, so you can listen to my podcast, Faith and Feminism. Um, you can also find me, um, I have an Instagram for the podcast, which I mainly just repost what the podcast is. <laughs> I don't use that one as quite as much, um, but I also have my own personal Instagram, which is Megan Chance, M-A-G-H-A-N-T-S-C-H-A-N-Z. Um, and then my book, Women Rising, you can just Google Women Rising InterVarsity Press and you will find it and you can pre-order it now. I have a website, myname.com, megachance.com. <laughs> um, it's not myname.com. I don't know what will happen if you type that in. Megachance.com. And yeah, I think those are the best ways you can find me. I have a Twitter that I don't really use, um, but yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Well, again, thank you so much for wanting to come on the show and just have a deep dialogue. Yeah, of course.